This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's not in my beloved East Bay in California at the moment. I'm actually in Burlington, Southern Ontario, Greater Toronto, looking after uh, my son. I'm here looking out the window. The sun is out, the sky is blue, and we have Solidad O'Brien, um, or shall we say Maria Dilla Solidad, Teresa <laughs> O'Brien, who's an American broadcast journalist who's worked for, amongst others, CNN, Al Jazeera America, HBO, NBC and MSNBC. She now runs Starfish Media Group and she anchors and produces The Matter of Fact, uh, which is a, a political uh, magazine program. And she has hosted and produced the widely acclaimed in America documentary series, which included Black in America and Latino in America. I want to read you a passage of an essay printed in the New York Times magazine. A story of a young black girl growing up on the black side of an Iowa town. At the edge of our lawn, high on an aluminum pole, soared the flag, which my dad would replace as soon as it showed the slightest tatter. That little girl grew up to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, writing about America's racial divide and issues of racial justice, in the process creating the acclaimed New York Times 1619 Project. I'm talking about Nicole Hannah-Jones. You write about your dad flying that flag, and you talk about the duality, right? That he's in Mississippi, which has this, this track record of terrible violence against black people, but also that he loves America. <laughs> I mean, my father was like generations of black people who uh, believed that service to their country was how they could finally get treated and recognized as full citizens. Solidad, you grew up in Smithtown, a white town in Long Island, New York, and you have this mixed race heritage. Your mother is Afro-Cuban and your father is an Irish-Australian. can only but imagine uh, what type of music uh, was played in the O'Brien <laughs> household growing up. So what's your jam? What do you dance to now? Oh, my gosh. So what my jam is and mm -hmm. what kind of music was played in my household are two extremely different things. Um, I had older sisters, so I think they really dictated kind of the 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 musical taste of the family. And it was arranged, right? I had sisters who loved Earth, Wind and Fire and I had sisters. We, <laughs> I'm sure I'm too old for half the people in this room because there was a song called Billy, Don't Be a Hero. Did you remember the song? I, I absolutely do. Uh, Right. And like that was a big deal. Come back and make me your wife. I exactly. Elton yeah. John mm -hmm. uh, was huge. So obviously Elton John. And so and I had a sister who was very into country music. So Charlie Pride uh, and never, you know, in Long Island generally when I was growing up. So my classmates at the time in the 80s, 
were listening to Rush and like heavy metal, uh, but I was not. I personally listened to Luther Vandross, who's kind of my all-time favorite. My dad loved Dionne Warwick, and I, when I got to run into her the first time, I got to tell her like, oh my God, my father loves you. Um, but it was just, you know, we, I grew up in a very loud and busy family, six kids, two parents. And so there was no sense of like, there's one record player and there's this you know, one thing that emanates. We argued over TV shows to watch. We argued over what to listen to. We argued over everything. It was a very kind of raucous household. I can only but imagine how difficult or confusing or complex your childhood would have been um, because you grew up not only this majority uh, white town, but also to this kind of biracial uh, family. Um Speak to that for us and, and speak to, uh, dare I say, it, the bravery of your parents loving each other in a time in America, which was going through massive racial strife and of which um, biracial couples were just were not the norm. Yeah, I, I don't know that they themselves uh, and my parents both passed away a couple of years ago. I don't know that they themselves would call it bravery. I think there's a lot of um, just lack of kind of knowing what's coming down the pike. When you come from a different country, you'd probably be a good uh, person to ask about this. I, you know, I don't think they fully understand how Americans and America thought about race. Um, my parents used to tell me the story of how they met and they talked about they went to this restaurant and tried to get seated together, right? When everybody would, in, in it was in uh, Maryland, in Baltimore uh, in 1958, right? So everybody in Baltimore would know like that's not a thing. <laughs> you can't do that. And I think they were kind of naive, right? They kept going to restaurant after restaurant on their first date to figure out where they could eat together. And that obviously was not going to happen. And so I think they had a lot of naivete. I also think my parents, when they kind of did figure it out, their strategy was very much like we're in a good community with good schools. Put your head down. You know, it's very 19, my mom was born in 1930, my dad in 1933, right? So it was a very 1930s kind of, you put your head down, you get done what you need to get done and you get out. But, 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 I, 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 but I think that's really fascinating because what your parents absolutely didn't do was to put their head down. And, and, and I'm going to just read something which um, you've got on your Twitter, which um, shows that your parents might have said, Solidad and to your siblings, put your head down. But, but they didn't and your mother most definitely didn't um so he says when your mother died uh, recently you found this letter to an editor amongst her possessions she's calling out john clean the town supervisor of smithtown uh, long island for his racist housing policies um i th- and you say you think it's from the 1970s it inspired mm-hmm. me to name names and to call out bullshit and don't be afraid so this is what she posted to uh, the local newspaper, to Supervisor John Clean and the Smithsonian Board. Let this ad convey to you and to the people of Smithtown Township the disgust and frustration felt by this member of the Negro community at your refusal to enact an open housing ordinance. Every honest person knows that there is discrimination in the sale and the rental of houses in this township. With your denial of an open housing ordinance, you have made light of our uh, uh, right and belittled our dignity. In this crucial moment in American history, you have aligned yourselves uh, with those who would oppress the Negro. Know then that you uh, bear this moral burden. That's not 
the letter is somebody who wants to lie down. Yeah, no, I think that that's very true. My mother was definitely considered to be a raging pain in the ass by a lot of people. Uh, and, 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 and if you knew the community at the time to say, understand that you bear this moral burden to a bunch of white people in Long Island who did not give a fuck, <laughs> I have to tell you. Uh, it's kind of like banging your head against the wall. No, and I guess I don't think it's a, a maybe lying down might be the wrong way to, to say that. It's much more of a figure out what you're trying to get to right? Like put your head down and get done what you need to get done and go to the next thing that you need to get done. So I think for my parents, they thought we're in a good community. The public schools are good. And so you need to be successful here. And if you are not dating, which none of us really were, uh, if you don't necessarily feel like you fit in, then, you know, when you go to college, like put your head down and get the stuff done because then you get to go to the next thing. And I think that that might be a more apt uh, description of what they were thinking about. Are you more like your mom or your dad? Uh, my dad was a very quiet person. So I'm much more like my mom, I think. My dad was one of those people who was very willing to let my mom um, kind of take the lead. He fully supported everything she was doing, but but he kind of stayed in the background. Right. Let's move on. So we've got the, the setup of your family, which I think is utterly kind of like wonderful because you sit at the intersection, I think, of America, you know, you are black, you are white, you are Latino, uh, you know, so we have that. Why did you become a journalist? Why did you want to go into the media? You know, I really liked the opportunity to tell stories is how I thought about it when I first started. I was pre-med in college and I decided not to go to med school. And I took a job at a TV news station, which was essentially like picking staples out of the wall and, and, and running scripts and getting people lunch and coffee. But what I really liked about the potential opportunity was in telling stories, right? In, in being able to say, boy, here's something people don't know about, you know, or let me, let me hop under this police line and, and get in to, to tell the story. And I, I love that kind of access as I became a reporter. And so that for me was very interesting. And I think as I got older, especially when I was working at CNN, I love the idea of parachuting into a place, whether it was overseas or let's say New Orleans uh, during Hurricane Katrina and say, you know, let me tell you what is happening as, as chaos is unfolding. I'll be the one who can, who can tell you what's really going on. And, and I think understanding that there was a whole point of view that was often missed in the news, that there were a lot of people, usually people of color who didn't really get much of a platform when it came to the news. I'll give you an example. I covered a covered a tornado in, I think it was Alabama. And we were focused on this one, you know, in tornadoes in Alabama, often um, uh, trailer parks just get decimated, right? For some reason, uh, you know, the, just, the, the, the tornadoes just rip through the trailer park, always seem to be right on the path, you know, and, and, and they damage it. So we were there covering a, tor- uh, a trailer park that had just been blown apart. And someone walked up to me and said that they lived in a trailer park a couple of miles away and that they had walked because they had seen our show on TV and they wanted me to know that there was another trailer park that wasn't getting the coverage. The reason we couldn't get to that one and why we chose the one we were at, it was just the roads weren't blocked. The road to their trailer park was blocked, right? And you can see how your story is told or not told, kind of just depending on how easy it is for the media to get to you. (laughs) And that was really, really true. And so I, I've always sort of thought about that in terms of 
you know, what allows you to tell a story? What allows you to get into certain communities? Do you feel like you have access to them? Do you know the story? Do you speak the language? Because if you don't speak the language, there's probably a pretty good chance you're not going to do a very good job telling that story. And that, I think, allowed me to think about, well, you know, how do we get to some of these voices that often don't get a platform? Let's like, stay on that early part of your career. It's the late 80s to the mid 90s. One of the kind of fascinating anecdotes for me is you told a story about working for KRON in, in San Francisco and you see that your colleagues are having this discussion, a lively conversation, and you wanted to jump in. And then you discover that they're talking about the affirmative action hire. So they were talking about you saying that you uh, probably did not deserve your place uh, there, even though you've gone to Harvard. Tell us about that moment. Oh, my gosh. I think so many people have this moment. <laughs> you know, I was new at Cron. I was also new to the West Coast. I came with three, like, duffel bags of my stuff and moved into an apartment. And I was also woefully underpaid. I was getting paid, I think, $30,000 a year as a reporter. The average was about ninety, right? So I was literally getting a third because I worked four days a week. And I remember I was walking down the hall and... Um, and a bunch of people were talking, you know, and I, you know, you see people talking, you're new and you're like, Hey, <laughs> awkward. Cause I'm new. <laughs> and I just remember it kind of, it's sort of the equivalent of when everybody stops talking, when they see you and you're like, Oh, I must've been the topic of conversation. It was very similar to that. And I just remember I could overhear them talking about, the, you know, as I pulled, as I kind of walked in, it, they were talking about the affirmative action hire. And then it sort of dawned on me because of all the awkward silences. Um, and, oh, Oh, it's me. Oh my goodness. We're talking about me, uh, which was awkward. But, you know, I think that that was a very uh, typical thing. And, you know, in my business, certainly, um, I think that that's something um, people love to feel like they can put you in their, your place and say you're not smart enough or you're not good enough. And um, and a lot of probably in general, but certainly in my business, you know, making sure that you get the opportunity so that you can prove yourself is really, really important. I don't know that I was the affirmative action candidate. <laughs> I, I uh, certainly was getting paid less than everybody else. And I had been a producer at NBC News. And so I probably had had more experience in some ways than a lot of other people, not as a reporter, certainly, but as somebody who was in news generally. Uh, and so I thought I had a lot to offer and also a lot to learn. I wasn't very good on air, certainly, when I started. Uh, you know, but it's not like doing neurosurgery. Break, break, break that down for me. What, what, what does that actually mean? I wasn't very good on air. And, and, and tell, know, tell, tell us about some of your fuck ups. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there were so many. We could literally spend an hour just talking about my fuck ups. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of being good on camera is being comfortable. And I wasn't. I would have been a producer at NBC News, so I hadn't been on camera. Uh, I think a lot of being good on camera is having people feel like you're talking to them through the camera, which I was not good at. I had my very first live shot ever, which, by the way, they had told me that I would not go live. Um until, you know, until I'd been there a few weeks, but within three days, I was doing a live shot from a, a, a bar because the, the San Francisco Giants had made it into the playoffs. I too lived in the East Bay. And, um, 
And so I remember having to go live and I was just very, very nervous, but I, I did everything wrong in terms of, you know, we had this big um, light set up and, and it was kind of, you went with one photographer. So it wasn't like a lot of people with you. And I was at this bar and everybody's drinking and I'm reporting and interviewing people and they're drinking. And I didn't realize like you shouldn't have your setup so that people can be behind you. And so somebody, a guy reached over and kind of pinched me on the ass when, when they came to me live, which sort of sent me into this like sputtering mess, you know, like that kind of stuff. That's just not good. That's just a lack of experience in doing stuff live. But, you know, reporting is certainly a learnable skill and you figure it out. And what you need to figure it out, honestly, is just a lot of opportunity, right? You need to get a chance to do it again and again and again, which I was very lucky. I got that at Cron, KRON TV in San Francisco, because we were the show, I did the show that was on before the Today Show. So I had, I do four live shots every day, you know, and eventually you kind of figure it out. I uh, went on to become the East Bay Bureau Chief and I loved it. I, I really liked um, the opportunity that I had to, you know, uh, sometimes we were telling stupid stories, but often we were telling important stories and I was able to leverage that into um, a, uh, a, a job at I said, what did I go after that? I think I went to NBC. Oh, NBC was starting uh, MSNBC at the time in 96. And so I went uh, to MSNBC in 1996 as the anchor of a, of a tech show. And I think what made that work was that I was always very clear that I'm not an expert. I'm just an interviewer. I'm here to understand things. Um, like I'm a smart lady who reads stuff. And so, uh, you know, for me, that was a great opportunity to sort of break into cable and then be on my way to go to the network. I know that my good friend Dawn Fraser is, is about to catch a plane. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to ask one question, Dawn, and then it's going to be over over to you. Uh, we're going to break our order just for Dawn because she is in an airport. Um, Solidad, you've been a victim of, of, of colorism and um, in some quarters, people have even questioned your heritage. Are you really black um, because of your appearance? Um, do you think that your racial ambiguity played any kind of like guiding hand in, in the, at least in the start of your career? Sure, absolutely. I, I did a documentary. I was asked to be in a documentary called Light Girls, um, uh, which Bill Duke did, who's a genius. And, you know, and, and I think a lot of people had um, a lot of denial about the role that the color of their skin plays in opportunities they get. I mean, when I was starting as a TV news anchor, which was, I guess, or on air in general, which was 93 for me, you know, I mean, most of the anchors looked like me, Frederica Whitfield, Suzanne Malveaux, you know, we all could be like sisters. I mean, we were often mistaken for each other. You know, sometimes people come to me like, oh my goodness, Suzanne Malveaux, can I have your autograph? And we used to joke, you know, I'd be like, sure you can. I write Suzanne Malveaux, <laughs> kind of like, I got you, girl. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do that autograph for you. So clearly, right, there's this um, skin tone that, you know, people in charge, which is usually a middle-aged white dude, um, or at least all my bosses were, uh, who feels comfortable with that, right? Like diversity, but not not scary for them, not too challenging for them, not too, you know, it's not going to make them uncomfortable. And so I, I think that's a very clearly a reason why uh, a lot of people on air, um, especially black women, were sort of light-skinned black women. Um, and, and you've seen times in which news organizations have had to hire more people of color because the story dictated it, that it wasn't some altruism. It wasn't that they suddenly realized that black journalists could be as amazing as any other journalist. 
that there was a story and white journalists were afraid to go into, say, South Central during the riots. And they, they actually needed black reporters. And so, uh, you know, that often moves the needle as opposed to, um, you know, some kind of sense of understanding the quality of journalism or the the opportunity in having a very diverse team. I, I, I feel like there's still to this day um, a real um, lack of diversity in newsrooms and certainly not in just in front of the camera now. I think that's gotten a lot better. But in terms of who's making decisions, because as much as it's great if you're in front of the camera, the real decisions, frankly, are made behind the camera, right? They're, they're made in the executive offices and in the executive team. And, and most of these newsrooms uh, are not really, really diverse. I mean, you have to really work at it. You have to be very intentional about it. Dawn, uh, this is your moment because I know uh, you, you're watching the clock. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Soledad. I actually had the opportunity to meet you many years ago um, with one of your producers from CNN, uh, Janelle Rodriguez. Um, um, and at that time, you had just released your book, Latino in America. Mm. It was absolutely amazing and inspirational. I'd just love to hear a little bit more about your perspective or thoughts on um, on what is um, the role of Latinos in upcoming politics, in your opinion. Oh, what a great question. When we did Latino in America for CNN, I think it was like 2009, maybe 2010. Um, one thing that was so crazy was that there were not a whole hell of a lot of Latinos on that project. And it became kind of awkward. First of all, everyone would talk about, well, you know, they being Latinos, they do this and they do that. And they and I was like me and the producer, the other the one other Latina on the project would say, we, <laughs> right? I mean, this is we. Uh, and that really was an indication of, you know, who's, again, who's who's going to control the narrative? What's the story that we're going to tell? Um, we actually had to get rid of the very first team because we started with a debate about our Puerto Ricans, Americans. And by the way, that is Googleable. You do not need to actually have a debate about it. You can just Google it. Uh, and I remember leaving that first meeting where we discussed this because it would change the numbers, right? Was it 48 million Americans or, or 51 million Americans, I believe? And and I, I just was like, this is not the team to do this. And I, I walked from that conference room to the president of CNN's office and said, like, we need a new team. This is the stories that we're trying to do. This is not OK. Like, this is not good. One of the stories, in fact, was about me, you know, and Soledad. And it just was my name. And it was just so stupid. Right. Every so often you get to do a great project on something that people don't cover, mainly Latinos in America, like as much as, you know, nobody loves me more than me. A hundred percent not. I am not the story. I don't want to do that. And, and it's embarrassing and insulting, frankly. And so we had to kind of start from zero again. And um, and I think the organizing theme of that project became uh, that Garcia, the name Garcia, was the eighth most popular American name. And what did that mean? In terms of politics, which was really the question, uh, I think it's really interesting to see because, of course, you know, many Latinos uh, think of themselves as white. And if you look at the data around, let's just use as an example, the number of Latinos who support Trump uh, is a really good indication, I think, of that population being open to 
you know, Democrats and Republicans and not necessarily and certainly shouldn't just be taken for granted by um, Democrats, which I think is often kind of the the, the slam on, on Democrats and the Latino population. So I do hope very much uh, as much as Stacey Abrams was able to bring a whole bunch of new people into voting generally, uh, I do I do think there's this great opportunity that this is a voting block that is willing and interested in being courted, that wants to be understood and 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 is open, you know, to go to whoever they feel likes them best and re- represents and reflects them the best. So I think it's certainly going to be a very powerful voting block, and it, it certainly can change the game. There, they they don't uh, Latinos generally just don't vote in big enough numbers at this moment. They don't vote in the numbers that they're total numbers would um, would allow. and But but one day they will, and that'll be huge. Uh, let's move on to social media. Um, you've got 1.3 million followers um, on Twitter and on Instagram. You've got just under half a million, and you're incredibly strident. You know, you, you call bullshit on just about everybody, whether it's um, Lou Dobbs, uh, Ben Shapiro, Tucker Carlson, and... and and also, you've even had a go at Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell for pushing kind of Russian conspiracy theories. So, so, the, so it's a two-part question. Number one, are you an equal opportunity skeptic? And then the second part is, is it easier on social media to put the boot in, as we would say in England, um, mm-hmm. into, you know, in your colleagues and to get media attention than actually being in front of the camera? Uh, you know, Certainly it gets media attention, but I think media attention on that stuff is kind of irrelevant. It's certainly not why I've, I've ever done it. I don't, I don't care. I don't care how many followers I have on that stuff. It really doesn't matter to me. I tend to talk about the things that are interesting to me. And I think when I decided that that would be my strategy, that was very nice because you could just, you just had to be honest with yourself. I, I think anybody who's full of shit should be called out, especially if they're committing bad journalism. And, and I, I, you know, certainly have talked about the failures that I've had when it comes to journalism. Um, I'd certainly, you know, I, I think there's many ways in which Fox News is horrific uh, in what they do. But, you know, let's just look at vaccines alone and some other things. Tucker Carlson could deserve his own hour on that conversation. But certainly other places, CNN's a good example, and I loved working at CNN, but they make a lot of mistakes and they have a, a standards and practices division that is not you know, has been defanged, I think, to a large degree. And I don't think you do anybody a service by pretending that somehow, you know, that that's okay, because I feel like I identify more with the kinds of stories they're telling. I don't think that's okay. I think that you should call out anybody who's failing you. And unfortunately, a lot of journalists. But the thing is, though, but the thing is, though, a a lot of the media hasn't in, in the last four years, isn't it? You know, because the goal of journalism is to hold people accountable uh, if they are empowered and to inform and to educate the public. Mm-hmm. So is the media, yeah. did the media basically fail in its primary objective during the no, I think we've era? moved off. Sure, yes, clearly. I mean, I think we have moved off as media, off of the idea of holding people in power accountable. And I think in many cases, we've moved into sucking up to people in power so we get access so we can you know slide our way in and be the you know the reporter who tells you all the palace intrigue about what's happening 
um, you know, there's plenty of ways of reporting on issues and people and administrations without being besties with all of those people. And I think there are many organizations that truly, truly fail you. A good example uh, would be Politico, which I talk about a lot because I think Politico is terrible, um, frequently terrible. Uh, and, and you know, when they have a headline that tells you that Ron DeSantis has, Governor DeSantis of Florida, has won the pandemic, that was a while back, in the middle of the pandemic, it's so crazy. First of all, no one had won the pandemic then. Framing a win in a state, I live in the state of Florida much of the year, uh, a state that has actually done a lot to hide their actual COVID numbers. So the numbers are not super reliable anyway. And now we've seen they're in the middle of a terrible wave along with Texas. They're kind of leading the way in, in COVID deaths. But I mean, imagine a headline that tells you that someone has won the pandemic. Like, that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. It, it's just not good reporting uh, on on the pandemic. It's just not smart. And this idea, right, and a lot of it serves to suck up to the governor because that actually helps you, gives you good access. And if you get good access, and you see this all the time, there was, I think it was CBS the other day, did a story about, oh, yes, they did a story on, you know, are, some people are concerned that immigrants might be the reason for the rise in COVID numbers, which, by the way, has been debunked. This is CBS. I think it was on Good Morning America. And, um, you know, some people may have, you know, the immigrants, uh, migrants of the country may be responsible. And they quote Governor DeSantis again from the state of Florida, which, by the way, uh, is not seeing immigrants from the state, from, from uh, Mexico, who's got horrible COVID numbers. So he's certainly not a, an expert on that. And it just was ridiculous. It was absurd. I, I find those things. I love Good morning, America. I watch it all the time. But when it sucks, someone should say it sucks. And you're not holding people in power accountable. You are falling uh, prey to Republican talking points and sometimes Democratic talking points. And your job in reporting is to explain to people and give them the truth. There is no indication that migrants to this country are the reason for the outbreak of COVID. We know the reason. It's people who are unvaccinated. They are filling up emergency rooms and, and putting other Americans at risk. The idea that that's a story, and I get it, use the word may, you couch it in some people. That is not okay. That is shitty journalism. And I don't care if three people read it. I do not care. It's, uh, you know, no one's paying me money. I don't, I don't have to deliver an audience. I am mad about it. I am disappointed in it. And I'm going to talk about it. And if three people want to talk about it with me, great. And if it's 100 people, great. And if it's 8,000 people, also great. Well, you know what? We've got uh, 715 talking with you at the moment <laughs> about it. Um, when you started your career, you literally were the only person of color in the newsroom. And that, and, and you've had to uh, maybe bite your tongue. Uh, no, put- oh, I, I, I wasn't. I'll correct you there. I wasn't. There was a great reporter at WBZ TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was a legend, and I'm forgetting his name because I'm so bad at coming up with names at the last minute in Boston. And no he was worries. a reporter. I was a person who fetched his coffee. So, so no, I certainly wasn't the only person, but there were not a whole heck of a lot. But there's going to be a certain level of kind of, you know, you've got your way to this position, right? And then to then push back and to say that we need 
deeper reporting, more reporting. Let's not just use uh, people of colour as some kind of avatar. If there's a crime story, all of a sudden we we, we zip down to uh, the poor back neighbourhood type of thing. Um, that that mu- that must be difficult. Where fundamentally uh, you want to also uh, advance your career. How has the newsroom changed? in your 20 plus years of being um, part of it, in terms of the reporting of African-Americans and of uh, the, the, the Latino community, how has it visibly changed? I think it's changed in good ways in that a lot of the conversations that are happening needed to happen. It used to be that those conversations didn't happen at all, or they happened among the five or six black employees. Uh, When I worked in Boston, I remember the Charles Stewart case, a very famous case. A guy claimed that a black man in Boston had climbed into the back of his car and shot his wife, who's pregnant, and um, and shot him as well. And his wife died and their unborn child uh, did not survive. Uh, And there was a manhunt in Boston. This is my first job where the police were looking for this, you know, rough description of the black dude who'd climbed into the back of the car. And one of the quotes that this guy had was that the, the, the black guy who'd climbed into the car had said something like, had, had thought that the two of them were 5-0, thought they were the cops. And I remember the black employees at WBZ, um, and I'm sure elsewhere, were saying like, that makes no sense. Like that just, that, that narrative didn't make sense. Well, it would turn out if you Google Charles Stewart uh, in Boston, uh, in the 1980s, um, it would turn or early 90s. It would turn out that he shot his wife himself, and he would later commit suicide, or someone threw him off a bridge in uh, in Boston. I think that that this idea of people being able to be in the meeting and saying there's something that doesn't ring true about this that was happening kind of on the the outskirts of the what was happening in the morning meeting. And I think what's changed is that there are more conversations now about race, about how we think about telling stories, about point of view, about what is objective. For a long time, we would have said, listen, we're going to go interview the police chief because what the police tells us, you know, will tell us about this shooting. You know, that is essentially the word of God. And we're going to quote them. You know, police officers tell us that just after five o'clock, John uh, Smith, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. We, we, we would use that as if they were writing our copy for us. And that was pretty typical. And I think now, certainly when it comes around race and even policing, people are much more willing to understand that the police are an active party in this conversation and this reporting, and that everybody in the story needs to be uh, taken as a source whose credibility needs to be questioned. Uh, And so that's a big change as well. Um, There was a time when you would just, you know, just go with whatever the police told you. They They were the credibility. That's changed a bit. And also, I think what's changed is conversations about point of view. Like, well, you see it this way, but what about the people in that actual community? <laughs> you know, maybe we should talk to some of them. You know, since since our story's on that community, wouldn't it be good to have somebody there uh, giving us some insight? And and so I think there have been some big changes, and I think you've had a lot of people, not always people of color, uh, a lot of white bosses who are really. Um, getting it. I was on a call the other day, a board I sit on, and the number of like white middle-aged dudes who are like, diversity is important to us, this matter, you know, they were jumping in. 
They were literally running with the ball. Normally, historically, that's been the black people or the Latinos or the Asians in the meeting who have to say, well, let me raise this topic yet again about diversity. I'm glad to see white people running with that. That's good. My last question before I throw it out to uh, to the crowded stage that we have. You have a new program, Matter of Fact, and it deals with structural racism. There's going to be many people uh, listening to this podcast and uh, a few people in this audience that are going to tell you categorically that America is not structurally racist. How well, do you tell they're, them that they're, they're mistaken? They're just, yeah. Well, they're just wrong. I mean, literally, that's just, that's a person who says that is a person who does not understand the history of America and and where America is today. So, I mean, when someone says that to me, I, I, I have to be honest and I just kind of ignore that person because they're not really engaging you in a conversation. They, they're just clueless. And so it's not really worth talking to them. Good people. And there's 700 of you uh, listening to this and there's going to be a good few thousand on the podcast. This is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast I've been running for some seven years. I now always record them on Clubhouse because I think it's a great way of getting a multiplicity of voices actually on the show. Um, so give the little green icon a hit, give it a follow, follow um, Solidad because we want her to remain on the app. Uh, she agreed to do this interview for me last week and she had, she didn't even know about Clubhouse. And I said, I'm I knew do about it. it. I just, well, you know, but, the, but you weren't on it. Like, you weren't on it though. I was absolutely not on it. And I really would need to be convinced because, you know, I'm sort of overwhelmed by social media now. And I don't know that I want to be in more conversations. I love doing interviews, but I, I you know, so some days like being part of a big clubhouse sounds like, oh gosh, wow. Mm, I don't know. I reckon you can handle it though. I don't think you have, you have too many, too many problems. Um, so now we're going to throw it out. So just before we throw it out, give the green icon a follow. I do these shows on a Thursday. Uh, it's not always uh, a one-on-one -on -one interview. Generally what I do is have three or four different pundits and we, and we talk about different news stories from either side of the Atlantic, but this is a special show. So if you want to be part of the mid Atlantic crew, um, um, hit the green icon, give it a follow, give me a follow, give people on the stage a follow as well as Soledad. Uh, but first, we're going to go to um, my good friend, um, Rebecca for the Blacks for her question. Rebecca? Hi, yes. So welcome, Soledad. Thank you so much, Roy Field. Yes, it's a huge room. I've been spending this entire time pinging people, texting people the link. So Soledad, you Hi, are beloved. I mean, this is like the red carpet rollout for your premiere, your oh, debut. Love, you. love the clubhouse. So, <laughs> so we're really excited for you uh, to be on here. So my question is, so I do, um, so my picture right now is when I met you at the Surviving R. Kelly Emmy um, yes. screening. Yes. So great. Yes, with, Tr with Tracy Baker Simmons, who's a good friend of mine, who's oh, in the audience right amazing, now. Amazing, amazing. You know, I amplify black issues and accelerate solutions. My club is called Black Issues Issues. So you I've looked at um, I've looked at your new media platform, really, really excited, already shared it out. Right. Um, what is the next step for you? What do you think is the intersection of amplifying these issues and media and your intentionality? What what in the best case scenario would you want people to walk away with once they watch Matter of Fact? You know, so matter of fact is a is a classic Sunday show. One of the things that we started doing was moving away from the talking head screaming congressman thing, which I think is kind of uh, 
the the fare that you get on C, uh, CNN and MSNBC. And partly we, we tape our show on Thursdays. So, you know, by, by especially under President Trump, every single thing that was said on Thursday was utterly irrelevant by Sunday or Saturday night when our show airs. And so we decided that we would use our show to be kind of what we called the teaching hospital of news. We'd give context. So when people would be talking about gerrymandering, our show would be about like, well, what is gerrymandering? This week, we're talking about um, those people who are resistant to getting vaccinated. Why? And in fact, psychologists have studied all these different kinds of categories of resistance to vaccination and what's the best way to actually have conversations with those people. And so that's really what our show is. We don't, we, we moved away from talking to political figures because one, often they lie. And two, I don't think that they actually help people understand an issue. If we're going to talk about farming in the Midwest, then I want to talk to a, you know, a soybean farmer, like an actual guy who's a farmer or a woman who's a farmer. If we're going to talk about uh, people who are, you know, dealing with medical debt in Ohio, then give me one of those people to talk to. If we're going to talk about why, you know, uh, millennials don't vote, well, then I want to talk to a millennial. And that has been very successful on our show. So we often talk about race um, just because that's a real topic today, but it's not our only topic. It really is kind of a, a policy and, and political show. Uh, in addition, my actual job really is to run a production company, which is called Soledad O'Brien Presents. And we do a lot of work. For example, we have a series that's about to air on HBO uh, that looks at the women who run the foundation called Black and Missing that tries to find and rescue black girls who are missing. You might remember there was that data point about all the missing young black women in D.C. And I think the sheriff at the time had said something like, well, we think they're runaways I mean, something awful. Um, and then we just create a lot of content. We've got another uh, series coming out on Discovery uh, Plus, um, I think this month, at the end of this month. And uh, and of course, I'm a correspondent for uh, HBO's Real Sports. So I, I have like 92 and a half jobs. Um, but I think my real goal is to take all these stories that I think often are missed by people and make sure that I elevate them while I'm also you know calling out what I see as big failures in journalism. Thank you for that question. All right, we're going to go down uh, the order uh, and we're going to go to Kelly Saunders. You're next. Kelly. Thank you, Royfield. Um, hi, Saladad. It's, it's really nice to have you here. Um, your dog you is so cute on. in your picture. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, he knows it. Um, <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a question for you, I guess, regarding media broadly. But your career, during, during your career, I guess, you, you've A, won awards, President's Award, Emmys, for different types of what seems to be what I would consider as long form, like really contextual journalism, where you had to really get down to the meat of things, or at least follow, uh, for example, a, a natural disaster through it, through what was happening and seeing what different localities were doing to take care of people. And all of these things required a lot of time and a lot of effort. And also during your career, you've seen the rise of the 24-hour news cycle and social media and how it's changed the dynamic of getting information out and, and demanding faster turnaround for information. Um, do you think that we are starting to see a lack of context in our in our immediate reporting and maybe a lack of follow up to that 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 you think could be a leading to some of the misinformation and disinformation that we're all seeing so often and b just not really supporting the full story of things and and how do you think that that's affected your career or or younger journalists who have not really been able to witness that exact ch those changes going on in media currently 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I do think this quick turnaround ends up with a lot of people just kind of de facto having half information. And in fact, you've seen a number of news organizations say they're no longer going to talk about arrests and things like that because they know they're not going back to cover the story. So it ends up being kind of unfair because they're not going to go back and say, oh, that was a mistake or, oh, that person actually was not, you know, turns out that they, you know, that they uh, they didn't get charged. Uh, and so I, you definitely are seeing a little bit of a change in that. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I love doing docs, because two reasons. One, you just get a lot of time with people, so you really get to sit with them. And then also, you hand them the mic. And so you're not saying, listen, in eight seconds or less, I need you to fill me in on this complicated thing. You you sort of, the entire doc is going to be about them articulating something kind of complicated and complex. So I do think the faster turnaround is problematic, but maybe the bigger problem is sort of chasing the soundbite and also not staying on a story to clarify it. I mean, there's so much jumping around. I have found there's just so much, it's this massive pipeline of information coming at us. And, you know, often because newsrooms are competing with social media, you end up getting things that are just problematic, right? Um, you know, uh, can you die of the COVID vaccine? We'll tell you at 11. Well, you know, I mean, that's not particularly helpful in terms of data or context, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it's a very terrifying headline and tease. And so I think because people are competing with the clicks on social media, they're trying to be a little more over the top. And, and that's actually back to what I said about Politico running with their, you know, DeSantis has, you know, has won the pandemic. Like, what what the fuck does that even mean? Like, won the pan? What does that even mean? Won a pandemic? Like, it's not even a thing. Uh, but I think they're trying to have a sassy headline to compete you know, in clicks. And, and so that ends up just not being particularly helpful to people who are actually trying to understand what's happening in the state of Florida, what the governor's role in that is, and what's happening generally in the pandemic. So I, I think you're very right. Thank you uh, for that question. Uh, Kelly, uh, moving on, uh, Lola, you're up next. Oh, my goodness. Well, Soledad, thank you so much for being here. And Royfield, thank you so much for bringing us all together. So that as a person who grew up in a Nigerian-American household with news-obsessed parents where CNN was on 24-7, this is perhaps the proudest moment uh, for at least my dad of <laughs> my entire career. I love it. I love it. It's so wonderful to see you. And, and like Rebecca said, you know, it's, it's moving to see you as well because you are doing everything that everyone's excited about right now as far as advancing equity in every sector of society you were doing it in 2008 so like i we're not exaggerating when we say it is it's a it's a moving proud moment to have you here as the pioneer um of of what's finally being um sort of acknowledged by the rest of america and you're welcome i i mean it from the bottom of my heart so i work in the marketing space and one of the things i think about a lot right now um is how um, brands can be making an impact. And, you know, your show is a brand. You maybe even consider yourself a personal brand. Um, your your movement with Black in America was a brand. I would love to learn from you, and I think it will benefit a lot of us in the audience. Can you tell us about a moment when you were doing that speak truth to power? You wanted to tell a story that, you know, your execs were uncomfortable with. Someone tried to kind of stop it. Someone told you it was too much. 
and you were able to kind of bring them along and and say the uncomfortable thing. If you can recall, yeah, please, yeah, a moment no, I, like that and what did you learn? the last part that I was able to bring them along, but I'll tell you <laughs> the first part. Um, when we did Black in America for CNN, which was 2008, I remember one of the executives said to me, so listen, you know, like, you know this, don't make it too black. <laughs> and Ooh, Black in America. Did but, they really? But, but everybody knows what that means, right? You know exactly what they're saying, right? They are saying, Soledad, do not fuck it up and drive away the white people who make up our audience and they're important to us. And by the way, I think the way you do that is not about whether it's black people or Asian people or whatever. It is about like, is it interesting and good reporting? Do you get the numbers, which the, the show itself was very successful. But, you know, it was the, the story that I'll tell involves the, um, the guy who was the head of CNN worldwide. So he was my boss's boss's boss. And we were at TCA, uh, the, the um, Television Critics Association did this, does this event, uh, and you talk about your upcoming big project. And so Black in America was our big six-hour six documentary, and I was sitting on this you know, stage to talk to reporters about it. And one of the reporters said to me, so Soledad, what did you learn? How did you book people? I told them, you know, here's how we found people. What, how did you decide the stories? I told them that. And what, did, what was your big takeaway? I said, you know, the thing that I thought was most interesting, again, this was 2008. The thing I thought was most interesting was that every single black person, whether it was people in poverty, I literally was with a woman as she was being evicted from her home, or middle class family. There was family that had six kids all going off to college and we followed them. Or a rich person. I was in Hollywood Hills with a black, you know, um, Hollywood star. I said, it was so interesting that when you talk to them about policing, they all almost like they're speaking off a script. When my son turned 13, I sat him down. Sometimes it's daughter, but 90% of the time, son. I sat him down and I said, if you are stopped by the cops, blah, 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 blah. So that was my answer to the journalist who had asked me and we wrapped up. And the head of CNN Worldwide, so my boss's boss's boss, took me aside and said, that is not true. <laughs> you should stop st sharing that story. Because I had said, you know, I, I thought that that was the most remarkable thing. He said, white people do that too. And I mm -hmm. said, I said, you know, they really don't. And in fact, I think a lot of our coverage was about black people are trying to stay alive, right? They're telling their kid, here's what you need to do so you don't get killed by the cops. And white people are saying frequently, if they have that kind of conversation has been my experience growing up in a white community, knowing lots of teenagers, uh, saying, you know, don't be an asshole if you're pulled over by the cops. And so, which are two different things. And he said to me, listen, you know, that is, white people have that same conversation. That is, that is, your, that's not true. And I said, well, actually, I've spent 18 months working on this doc. It is true. And, you know, and, and I think it's very different than the conversation white people are having with their kids. And he said to me, it's not true. And don't tell that story again. And I said, Okay, because <laughs> I, I like that job and I wanted to keep that job. So I shut up. I kept my mouth shut. And, uh, you know, because uh, I get it, right? And here is a guy. He was the person who personally funded Black in America. Cost a fucking fortune. He, a great dude, nice guy, smart guy, right? But it made him physically uncomfortable to think that policing could be unfair to people of color. Of years later, of course, I would tell that story, but I, I certainly didn't all the time that I worked at CNN because I was told not to. And I liked that job and I wanted to keep that job. So I understand when my journalistic colleagues, 
pull their punches or don't say something or do say something because they like their job and they'd like to keep their job. I don't know that I convinced anybody, but I do think looking back now, you know, that was very typical. And he was a good dude. He was a good guy. He was not a bad guy, but he had these major walls up about what his take was on race and race relations. And those kinds of things are problematic, I think, because sometimes it's the quote unquote good guys who also need to really understand the state of the world. So that there are a lot of people in this room who are going to check themselves as a result of your vulnerability and sharing that story. Thank you so much. You bet. That was uh, an excellent question and uh, a fantastic uh, repast. So thank you for that, Lola. And uh, thank you for your honesty there, uh, Soledad. AB is, is a good friend of the show. So AB. Thank you, Soledad, for uh, giving us your time. This has been a wonderful treat. And uh, I'm honored to be able to be on the same stage with you. Um, so I guess my question, and I'm going to make this very brief. Going back to when you first started off and the amount of gatekeeping and the and the difficulty that you had getting in and just getting established as a young reporter, um, do you see a lot of those same barriers to entry now? Has it gotten worse? And what do you think can be done to allow more um, representation so that, you know, we're not dealing with the first Afro-Latina or we're not dealing with the first this or that, you know, anchor or reporter um, in, you know, in 2021? Such a great question. So what we've tried to do with our production company is instead of doing uh, what a lot of news organizations do, which is to recruit at Harvard and Yale and, you know, I, which, by the way, my alma mater is Harvard, so I have no issues with Harvard. But I, I think you have to be more aggressive in your recruitment process. And it's not just news orgs. I think you're seeing a lot of companies across the board saying, if we want to find different kinds of people, we actually have to open our minds about where those people might be. And so I, I think that is beginning to change. I will tell you this. We now take all of our interns from CUNY and the CUNY system. And I have been blown away by how many how, how many more skills the CUNY students have than I ever had. I mean, they're they're. The first year we took CUNY students was probably about five years ago. So phenomenal that I was like, oh, we shall only take CUNY students. But, you know, a lot of these internships are very competitive. And often, as I benefited from that, like having Harvard on your resume really kind of moved you up the ladder. So I think there are ways to be able to say, let's make sure that we're really looking at a whole range of people. Because what, what made my career was being given opportunity to succeed. And if I failed getting an opportunity the next time to go back and figure it out and succeed, it really is as simple and as complicated as you just need opportunities. And so I think anytime there's a chance for, you know, young people today to have an opportunity, then that's what's going to help them succeed. It's not brainstorming. You're not going in. Like, I'm not operating on people, you know, and, and, and building my own equipment, you know, my bare hand before I do their brain surgery. I mean, Sanjay is, but nobody else is. I, I'm, I'm telling stories. It's a learnable skill. And so I think it's really about giving people opportunity. Right, we're going to have one last question from a good uh, stalwart pundit of the show. Doug has been um, on the podcast, I think, for about four years now. So the last question is going to go to Doug Levy, and then we have one very special question to ask Sally Dad, and then she can get on with her day. So sorry that so many of you have come on stage and will, uh, won't have the opportunity to ask a question, but Doug Levy, ask a question, sir. I am so pleased to be here. And uh, Sally Dad, I first met you at, at an, uh, an NABJ conference a long, long time ago when I was there with my editor from USA Today back when I was covering uh, 
the Food and Drug Administration for that that newspaper. Anyway, um, I really admired your work and I love what you're doing now, but I'm not sure we know how to get the rest of the media to behave. Uh, you're setting the model for how to do it right, but what do we need to do to really get the attention of the folks that are making the decisions that lead to just stupid questions at the White House briefings instead of actually reporting stories and getting facts straight? Oof, I don't know the answer to that. And if I did, I feel like I would quickly run out and play all my lottery numbers and go make a zillion dollars and then just go live in a cave and never have to deal with anything again. I don't know. Is there a way to teach the audience better? Because you know, media literacy, you, you talked about that. I mean, fundamentally, that's the problem. People don't know how, how to tell that the story can't possibly be correct. You know, I think... There's a lot of people who should know better. I mean, when you watch all these stories now where people are talking about how they went down the rabbit hole of, you know, um, uh, conspiracy theories, et cetera, et cetera. Like, they're not stupid people. You know, they're thoughtful people. They just are tricks. So I, I honestly do not know. I don't know that media literacy is going to take with people. I don't know that people want to have media literacy. I think they want to be fed what they already believed, which is someone's out to get them. I mean, sometimes I want to say to people, why the fuck is the government listening in on you and the dumbass shit you're doing? Nobody cares. And by the way, your phone is listening in on you. <laughs> Everything is on your iPhone. But, you know, this idea like the government's going to in insert a little chip in my arm. I mean, it's so insane. I don't know how to deal with that, by the way. That's why our segment this weekend on Matter of Fact is about like, how do you deal with people? Um, I don't, I honestly, I don't know how to handle that, right? Because, and I've had very thoughtful, intelligent, interesting, smart people explain to me that the government is now tracking them because the shot that they got has now put a tracker in their arm. It's crazy. I don't know that media literacy solves that. I do not know what solves that. What I do find problematic, which I try to call out a lot, is that journalists give that person the same platform as here's a guy from Johns Hopkins University or woman who's been studying uh, the issue of vaccines for 40 years. <laughs> you know, we're going to put them on the same platform. That frustrates me and it pisses me off to no end. And I, I don't even know that I know what to do about that because I, I try to use the platform that I have to talk about it and call it out. I, I don't know that I'm particularly successful about it. So I, I, I will have to end my conversation with all of you today to say I, I, do, not, I do not know the answer. Uh, solid that O'Brien. Thank you uh, for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and thank you for giving us an hour plus of your time. Uh, you've been a most excellent guest. Now, just before you go, uh, there is one thing which I've started um, asking uh, of the guests on the show, which is um, who should I speak to next? And can you help uh, and make that effective introduction? So who do you think? Yeah, you know who you should talk to? Do you know who Franklin Leonard is? Mm -hmm. He's done a lot of work and research into diversity, and it turns out he just joined a board that I'm on the other day, but he's a fantastic interview, and he's so smart and interesting. I highly recommend you chat with him. I mean, I certainly could help you, but I'm not sure it'll help help. Uh, he's a great guy. I think he'd be happy to do it. Fantastic. I will, I will be uh, texting you uh, for his digits uh, later. But again, uh, thank you, Soledad, for coming on to the show. Uh, welcome to Clubhouse. So sorry to everybody who came up on stage at didn't get an opportunity to speak to but exactly we'll have you back <laughs> we'll utterly have have you back and then and now you know how it runs uh you know yeah. you can um 
we can maybe squeeze in a little bit more time with you as well. But um, thank you for joining us today in the audience. And if you're listening to the podcast, um, why don't you go on to Clubhouse? Because what, basically what it means if you are listening to the podcast, and there's several thousand of you that download it, it means that you have the opportunity every Thursday when I do these to be in the audience and to ask a question to whoever's been interviewed. So so that is an ideal uh, and a great way for you to get onto Clubhouse. But again, Solidarity, Brian, thank you for coming on to the show. Just before we close down the room, if you're in the audience and you want to be alerted of whenever these interviews go live, generally it's uh, it's every Thursday, but go and smash the little green icon over on the top there to be alerted when I go live. Uh, give Solidad um, a follow. Give everybody on stage a follow as well because they are fundamentally really really good people thank you and don't forget folks left to center politics is right thinking politics take care look after yourselves but look after your loved ones even better bye-bye thank you that's been fantastic thank you 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 th